Thanks for joining us at our Foothills Church podcast. We exist to help people find and follow Jesus. If you're new here, we'd love to connect with you at foothills.cc. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, Foothills family. How are we doing? Everybody okay? Good. Good. Give it up for our worship team. Amazing. Leading us right into worship. Kind of the sense of what we're going to be talking about today. I, I already feel that, and it's going, to be a, it's going to be a great day. How many of you have ever been out to Colorado, seen the Rocky Mountains? How many have seen that? Yeah, a lot of people. It is absolutely amazing. If you've never been there, you, you just got to go. You got to see these things. And I remember the first time I ever saw them, uh, my wife and I went on our 10th anniversary out to go skiing in Colorado. And, and you know, coming from Florida, seeing the Rocky Mountains was something else. I mean, it was I mean, your jaw dropped, magnificent, awesome when you saw those mountains. I remember coming back from that experience and trying to tell a bunch of flatlanders in Florida about the Rocky Mountains and trying to describe the Rocky Mountains. For those who hadn't seen it, you know they just weren't getting it. I tried the best I could with all the adjectives that I knew trying to describe the majesty of the Rocky Mountains, but I fell short. I knew they weren't getting it. And then I tried to explain snow skiing, you know, the thing that I was doing while I was out there to a bunch of Floridians who had never probably seen snow. I'm like, hey, this is, it's, uh, it was something else. And I'm trying to explain it. And you can just see that, that blank stare, you know, when somebody doesn't really get what you're trying to describe. You know, sometimes there are some things that are just really hard, no matter how hard you try to describe adequately. Like, how do you describe things like that? How do you describe a taste? How do you describe a smell? What, what generally what we do is we try the best we can, and then we always seem to revert back to some sort of comparison so that they maybe can kind of get a grasp of what we're saying. Like when I came back, I said, I'm telling you about the Rocky Mountains. They're not getting it. And I said, all right, you know, it's kind of like the Smoky Mountains, because I knew most of them have seen the Smoky Mountains. It's kind of like the Smoky Mountains, only bigger and better. It's like the Smoky Mountains on steroids. That's what the Rocky Mountains are like. Or trying to explain that skiing, snow skiing is like, it's sort of like water skiing, except you're freezing and you're not on the water. And it smells sort of like, there's a taste kind of like that. And no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to find the words. And generally what you'll just end up saying is that, look, I can't explain it. You're just going to have to go and see it for yourself. I don't have the word. I don't have the adjectives that are adequate to describe what I'm trying to describe. How would you describe God? Like if someone, like you met someone, they just showed up, I don't know, a spaceship landed out in our parking lot and, 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 and somebody came in here, never heard of God, and you had the uh, task of describing God to them. What would you do? You'd probably start with all of those adjectives that you'd heard and that you know, and that you're like he's omnipotent. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent. He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. He's righteous. He's good. He's filled with grace and mercy. And he's loving and he's kind. And you go on and on and on. And you do the best you can. But I'll tell you, there is one word that needs to be on every list. In fact, I would argue it needs to be on the top of the list. And it's the word holy. God is holy. He's separate. He's one of a kind. He's in a class by himself. And the reason it's so hard for us to describe God is that there's really 
no one or anything to compare him with. Today we're going to try to talk about the holiness of God and describe it as best we can, which is a hard thing to do. But we're in a series called Spinoffs. This is our second season of this, and it's been amazing. If you haven't watched the last three weeks, you need to do yourself a favor and go back and watch. All of the communicators crushed it. They did a great job. We started off week number one, Pastor Joseph, our campus pastor, our Pendleton campus. By the way, can we say hello to our Pendleton campus? How are you guys doing? We love you. It is great having you. And Pastor Joseph talked about a guy named Ehud. Now, the series is about these lesser-known characters and these people in the Bible that most of us have never heard message about. So he talked about a guy by the name of Ehud and, uh, and did a great job of that. And in the following week, Pastor Ramphis, our Foothills Espanol pastor, talked about the fish that swallowed Jonah. Now, have you ever heard a message about that? I don't think so, right? But it was, it was really good. And then last week, Pastor Kevin, he crushed it as well, and he talked about Baruch, this message on Baruch. And so today, I'm going to talk to you about another lesser-known character of the Bible named Uzzah. Everybody say Uzzah. Uzzah. Doesn't that sound just kind of like, where do these characters come up with these names? I don't know, but it would be easier if they were all named Bob or Jim or Joe, but they're Uzzah and Baruch and Ehud and things like that. Anyway, Uzzah is the character in the Bible story we're going to look at today, but it really isn't a story about Uzzah. It's, about the, it's a story about the holiness of God. It's about the holiness and glory of God. And there is a there, we're going to be talking about something known as the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. Not to be confused with Noah's Ark. It's a totally different Ark. This is an ornate box that the nation of Israel would carry along with them and their journeys. And it symbolized the power and presence of God to the Israelite people. Now, I'm gonna, I'll give you some more history about that toward the end of the message, but I just want to kind of set us up for what we're going to look at today. Um, So this box, again, the presence of God is symbolized here, the power of God. And so the nation of Israel, in, in the book of Exodus, when they leave Egypt, they've been held captive for 400 years in Egypt, and God delivers them. Their leader, Moses, leads them out, and they wander in the wilderness during those 40 years headed toward the promised land. And during that time, they would worship uh, in this thing called a tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure where it was kind of like church on wheels, all right? This is just portable church. This is what they would do. There were nomadic people, and so they would go. They would set up this, this place, this tabernacle, and it had different sections. It had an outer section. It had a middle section called the holy place, and it had the inner sanctum was known as the holy of holies, and it was the place that only the high priest could go in one time a year. And inside of the Holy of Holies, they put this box that um, was, was called the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And on the Ark of the Covenant on the top was called the mercy seat where, these, where the high priest would make sacrifices for the people of Israel for, for the atonement of their sin. But in the box was also some other things, which relics of, of uh, the nation of Israel that I'll talk about later. But what's going on in the story we're going to look at today is that now the nation of Israel has, you know, they've gone through into the promised land as many years later, and they are in a battle with the Philistines, uh, a rival nation, and during that battle, they lose the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines capture it. And so they take it back to their country, 
and they put it in the temple of their pagan god named Dagon. And they put the Ark of the Covenant, figuring it'd bring some sort of good luck or something, and they put it in there. They check on it the next day, and the statue of Dagon is laid down before the Ark of the Covenant. So they're like, that's weird. They pick it back up. They come back the next day, and now the, the, the statue of Dagon has not only fallen down before the Ark of the Covenant, but his head is off and his hand and feet are off. And, the, and the, now the, people are in Phil, the Philistine people are starting to get sick, and they're breaking out in tumors because they've got the Ark of the Covenant. And they realize, whoa, we did something wrong here. we got to get rid of this thing. So they send it to another Philistine town, and the same thing happens. They start breaking out in tumors. They're like, we don't want this thing either. They send it to another. They don't, nobody wants it. For seven months, it's bouncing around. They're trying to get rid of it. And finally, they go, let's just put it on a, on a cart and send it on its way. So they put it on a cart, and they put a bunch of peace offerings, hoping that God will forgive them for what they've done, and send it back on its way toward Israel. And it ends up there. And eventually, it ends up in a, at the homestead of a guy by the name of Abinadab. And it lands there, and for 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant is in Abinadab's house. And God is blessing him, because he's, you know, he's an Israelite, and God is blessing him. And then eventually, King David, who is now the king of Israel, he knows about the Ark of the Covenant, and he finds out it's Abinadab's house, and he decides, I'm going to go get it, and I'm going to bring it back to the city of David, Jerusalem, and it's a big deal. Now, during this process... This Ark of the Covenant, there were very strict rules about who could move it. Nobody could touch it. It, it. it was all about the power and the glory and the holiness of God. And during this thing, while they're moving it, transporting incorrectly the Ark of the Covenant, Uzzah um, does something he shouldn't have done, and God kills it. And there's going to be a tendency when we hear the story, it's going to seem like, wow, God really overreacted. That was so unfair. The guy was just trying to do the right thing and God struck him dead. In fact, that's how David felt and David is angry at God. And here we're going to pick up the story. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have your, the Bible, the words will be on the screen. You, can, you, you have the version app, you can... You can check it out there. So then David, again, gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Whoa. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named the place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah 
as it is still called today. David was now afraid of the Lord. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. The holiness of God. Let's talk about the holiness of God today. And through this, this kind of strange story that if you just read it without understanding the background, you would have probably that same reaction that David had that, that normally most people would have like, wow, that was not fair. But let me give you two points about God's holiness. And the first point is this, that we see in the story is that familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you ever heard that old adage? Familiarity breeds contempt. What does that mean? Let me give you the actual definition. It's the extensive knowledge of or close association with someone or something that leads to a loss of respect for them or it. In other words, the more I'm exposed to something that once I held reverently, the more I'm exposed to that, the less reverent I feel toward that. I don't have the same appreciation I had because I've been overexposed and I've had saturation. It's kind of like the job that you might have now. When you first were applying for that job, in your mind, it was a dream job. Man, if I could land that job, it would be the best job ever. But now you fast forward the clock a little bit and you dread getting up in the morning to go to that job. And all you can think about is five o'clock on Friday when you get to punch out of that job and go to the weekend. What happened? Well, familiarity bred contempt. You no longer have the same appreciation because you've been exposed to it so much. It's the reason we treat complete strangers better than our own family. It's the reason we treat different people that we don't even know better than our spouses. Because we're so familiar with them that we no longer have them, the reverence that we should have for them. And we kind of have a different view of them. And if we're not careful, this is what we do with God. We allow those same feelings drift into our relationship with God and we start looking at God, his holiness, as something very common. And I think this is really the, the issue here in the story and this is the issue for most of us is that we don't take the holiness of God seriously. It becomes something very common, especially in the South. We have been exposed to the things of God. Every, you know, 200 churches in this county or more, everywhere you turn to something that's, points to God. And because of that, I think we lose our appreciation. Our familiarity has bred contempt. And we no longer consider God's holiness as something that we should be in awe and reverence of. It's kind of common. And that's a dangerous place to be. You remember when Jesus went back in the, in the book of Matthew, Jesus has been all over the place. He's, he's doing miracles everywhere. He's healing people. He's teaching. He's doing great things. He go back, goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And you remember what happened in Nazareth? He got there and people like 
were, the Bible says they were offended at him. And they looked at him and they said, we know you. This is your hometown. You're from here. You're a hometown boy. You're the carpenter's son. We know your brothers and sisters and your parents. You're basically a nobody. You're just common to us. And the Bible says that Jesus didn't do any miracles there because of their lack of faith. It's a dangerous place to be. And yet, I know how easy it is to get there. And I think when we look at the story, this is what we see. Now, if we're going to really understand it, I think we have to go back to the book of Exodus, where the Ark of the Covenant began, where it was originated, where God gave Moses this idea. So let's look at Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 16. At this point, remember, the nation of Israel is in the wilderness on their way to the promised land during their 40-year nomadic journey. So here's what God tells Moses. Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the ring to the side of the ark to carry it. This is so important. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings, never remove them. When the ark is finished, place inside it the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Now I want to show you kind of, we don't know. First of all, the ark of the covenant is not here today. That's You remember the movie Indiana Jones? That's the kind of looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they're not going to find it. Most likely it was destroyed when the temple was destroyed. But there's kind of a rendering. I want to show you the picture in case you want to see. It's kind of an ornate box. Notice, though, on the side, those rings and those poles. That is so important to this story. Okay? Again, the mercy seat's on top. This is where the sacrifices were made. Inside the box were the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. There was also... um, a jar of manna. During the wilderness, God created this supernatural food. They didn't have anything to eat. And so every morning from the dew of the ground, this this miracle food would come up. And the Bible says it was kind of, it it, it was sweet tasting. And it was, it was, it was just, it was like Krispy Kreme every morning. You know, this is what they got, right? The light was always on. And so this is every morning. That was manna. So they took some manna, they put it in a jar so that they wouldn't forget God's provision for them. And then there was the rod of Moses' brother Aaron, who had a, his rod who budded, sprouted on top, and they put that in there as well. And it, these, were, these were a very important memorabilia from their journey. And again, it, it symbolized the power and presence of God. So this was really, really important box. But those rings and those poles, those, those, those poles, this is why it's so important, because also in Scripture tells, it, it's very clear about how this, this is supposed to be handled. First of all, you need to understand that God put these rules in place to protect his holiness. Not that God can be confined to a box or a temple or anywhere else, but this, again, was symbolic of something. And so God made these instructions that the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant could only be carried by those poles. And nobody could touch. And by the way, the only people that could carry those, those, hold those poles were the priests, the Levites, certain tribe. And if anybody touched the Ark of the Covenant, they would die. I mean, it was pretty strict. 
So when you look at the story, if you don't know that background, you go, man, that, was, that wasn't fair. That wasn't good because well, let's go back and let's, let's look at what happens. Because the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, now, remember, it has it is, it is moved from uh, that journey going to uh, out of Egypt to the Promised Land into the Philistines' hands, back to Abinadab's house, and then eventually at Obed-Edom's house, and, um, and then David wants to get it back. So um, let's look at what it says. Let's go back to the story. So they placed the Ark of God on a new cart. First problem, the Ark of the of the covenant is not supposed to be put on a cart. It is only to be carried by those poles. So they, they put it on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. It goes, it goes on, verses 6 and 7. But when they arrived at the flesh, fret, threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. The Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Now, let's just kind of talk about this. Again, they, 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 in their minds, they were working smarter, not harder, right? Like they thought, here's what we do. I mean, it's only a box. It's not that big. It's only 45 inches and 27. It's not that big, but it's got some stone tablets in there. So it's pretty heavy. So they're thinking, you know what? I'll bet we could do this a little more efficiently, we're going to travel with it. Um, why don't we just put it on a cart? It's a new cart. It's not like it's old, it's ragged. We're going to put a brand new cart out here and let's just put it on there and let's just travel with that because that made sense, right? And as they get to the threshing floor of Nacon, oxen stumbles a little bit. The ark probably kind of moved a little bit. And, and Uzzah, being a guy that's probably like all of us, thinks to himself, I don't want the ark of God to fall on the ground. And he instinctively reaches out to steady it, which was a really bad idea because God immediately strikes him dead. Everybody's looking at him like, what just happened here? And everybody's afraid of the Ark of the Covenant again. Crazy story, isn't it? Why would God do this? Because they had taken something holy and made it common. Ahio, Ahio and um, Uzzah, boy, these guys got tough names. They were sons of Abinadab. It had been at their house for 20 years. It was holy, but it had become common to them. They saw it every day. No big deal to us. I mean, we respect it. I mean, we're not, we're not going to do anything bad. Let's just, let's just kind of figure this a little bit. Let's we'll stick it on this cart. We'll get a nice new cart, move it there, touches it. Boom, that's it. Why? Well, you need to understand. It really, I mean, I know that David felt like it was because of God's anger, and it was God's anger. But it wasn't God's anger. It wasn't the reason God killed Uzzah was not because he was angry, although he was. The reason God killed Uzzah, because God is that holy. And just because we think something's the right way to do it and it makes sense to us doesn't mean it's the right way as far as God's concerned. And this is really important. So let me ask you a really serious question. What is it that is holy that you've made common? Think about your life. What is it that you've made common that God called holy? Again, we've had exposure We've got this familiarity that's easy to breed contempt because we are around this stuff all the time. Man, we're in the South, we're in church, and, and, and it's real easy to lose kind of that 
awe factor and become really common. So how is, what is it for you? Maybe it's the way that you, flippant, you flippantly use the name of God, like in your post, OMG. I mean, it sounds harmless enough, but isn't that taking something holy and making it so common? What about the way we approach our time with God in our Bible? When we read our Bible, do we take it serious? How about when we, you know, carve out a time for our prayer time. Do we take that serious? Is it, is it holy to us, that time with us and God? How about coming to church? Do we, just, are we, are we, do we prepare our hearts to come in before the presence of God? See, this is what happened. It's just familiarity breeding contempt, and that's an issue. So you question, the next, I think the natural question then is, how do you respond to the holiness of God? Like, what should be our response to the holiness of God? Well, let me give you the answer. The response to God holiness should be reverence, worship, and conviction. Worship, reverence, and conviction. You know the word holy or holiness is found 600 times in the Bible. 600 times. And holiness literally means separate, one of a kind, in a class by himself. Again, the reason we can't describe God adequately is because we don't have anything to compare God to. Whatever your view of God is, let me tell you something, it's not big enough. It's infinitely, exponentially more than we can even describe, imagine, think, any of that God is that big. He's unlimited in every area. Every person in Scripture who ever encountered God did so in this whole attitude of awe, reverence, and conviction. Every person, you look at Scripture, and when they came to an encounter with God, nobody flippantly said, hey, big man, how are you doing? Hey, hey, big man in the sky, hey, you high five. No, it was never nothing like that. When they encountered God, it was like, Oh, man. Isaiah encountered God, the prophet Isaiah. And you know what he said? Woe is me. I'm undone. He recognized his sinfulness before a holy God. He didn't play games and go, hey, what's up, big guy? He said, I'm done. Undone. I'm going to die because I'm in the presence of God. When Moses met God through the, at the burning bush, remember God told him, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. Later, when the glory of God would pass by Moses, he had to hide his face. He, didn't, he was afraid to look at God. Awe, reverence, conviction. That's, that's how we're supposed to respond to the glory of God, to the holiness of God. Now, later on, let me just kind of, we're going to fast forward some history here. Um, later, the nation of Israel would eventually um, have a homeland. And they would um, not use the tabernacle, that portable church any longer. They would build a temple. And David's son, King Solomon, built the temple. It took seven years. It was, a, it was an incredible thing. Um, but... Anyways, eventually that now the Ark of the Covenant was going to be in the temple permanently. The temple eventually would be destroyed. But, um, but at this point, they're doing a dedication service 
of the temple. They finally have arrived. They finally built this temple for God. And King Solomon is leading the people. The entire nation is there. You get a picture of this. Like everybody's in Jerusalem for this big event as the temple is, you know, kind of doing the grand opening. But it's a holy moment. There's not a lot of, you know, it's, it's celebratory, yes, but there's this awe and there's this like sense that, whoa, we're in the presence of God. Let's just, And Solomon prays. It says this, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because of the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Would that have been an incredible moment to be there? Just think, but you see the response? Everybody, like they couldn't look. They fell face down. They worshiped. They sensed that they were in the presence of holiness. In Psalm chapter 99, verse 5, it says, Exalt the Lord our God. Bow low before his feet, for he is holy. You know, in heaven, there's a constant refrain to the Lamb of God who sits on the throne It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy. Any list of the attributes of God, holiness should be at the top. In 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now let's go back the second time when David now, he hears, they they send the, the, the... Ark over to Obed-Edom's house. He hears that God is blessing Obed-Edom and David's like, okay, let, maybe we should try this again. Maybe let's go get it. I want, I want it to bring it in, in back to Jerusalem. So then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went there and brought the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. Now watch the difference. After the men who were what? What were they? Yeah, they wasn't on a cart. The priests were carrying it. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf to worship. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing of ram's horns. An amazing celebration now. And they got it right the second time. And God was pleased and nobody got killed and it was just a really good day. It was awesome. So at this point, um, I think the natural response for most of us in this room would be, oh, wait a second. God seems so unapproachable. Like, how is, can anybody approach God? Should we, yes, we, we should have awe and reverence and, and, and the right kind of fear, not trembling like we're afraid, but reverent kind of fear, and there ought to be, conviction, all those things. But we, it's almost like God is no longer approachable, and that's not the story of the New Testament. See, here's the beautiful thing. In the New Testament, there's this shift. When Jesus lays down his life for all of us, 
And on doing so, when we proclaim the name of Jesus in our own life, he imputes his righteousness on us so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin any longer because it's been removed because of what Jesus did on that cross. And now, according to scripture, we can have this relationship with our holy God. He's still just as holy as he's ever been. But now, because of what Jesus that because we were always separated from this holy God because of our sin, but Jesus bridged the gap, allowing us. And here's what it says in Hebrews. It says, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Aren't you thankful for what Jesus did? Because in doing so, Jesus made it possible for all of us to boldly approach the throne of God, that we can come to God. We don't have to go through a priest or a preacher or anybody else. We have direct access to God because the Bible says, according to Scripture, that in Christ we are priests ourselves, that we have the priesthood of God, and we have direct access to God. Jesus did for us what we could not do. If Jesus had not done that, we would still be in that Old Testament way where the, we would be doing animal sacrifices to atone for sin. But Jesus died once and for all for our sins. And it's, our sins are not just covered, they're removed as far as the east is from the west. And we have this right relationship with God. And if you do not have that relationship with God, he invites you into that. That's the beautiful thing. He invites you in. He, he longs for that. He desires relationship with you. He went to a great to great lengths to make this possible by sending his one and only son, Jesus, to die for us so that now we can boldly come before God. And if you don't know Jesus, that's where it starts. And if you do know Jesus, you ought to be thankful every day. Yes, God is still holy, and we ought to treat him with awe and respect uh, and, and all of those things that he deserved deserves. But in doing so, we know that we can have access because the scriptures now says that we can call him Abba, Father, which literally means daddy. That's the kind of relationship God wants with us. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the gospel message, how that we were so far from God and how Jesus bridged that gap and made it possible for us, I am thankful, eternally thankful that it is the way that it is now. And if you don't know Christ, I, I pray that today would be the day that you invite Jesus in your life. And if you're a believer today, you ought to be celebrating what Jesus did for you. And you ought to be in awe and reverence of the holiness of God. Never let that familiarity get the best of you. Recognize that he is in a class by himself. Let's pray together. God, thank you. We recognize your holiness. God, there is no one to compare you with. You are holy. Your name is holy. Everything about you is holy. You are set apart. And God, you've called us to holiness to live our lives in a way that honors you. And God, I thank you that because of what Jesus did on that cross 2,000 years ago, that it, that it affects everything that happens in our lives today as followers of yours. And today, God, I'm praying for those that are here, that, that, are, that are watching online, for those in Pendleton. And I'm praying that today would be the day of their salvation. 
So God, I pray that any person who doesn't know you today would proclaim the name of Jesus. And if that's you, maybe just offer a prayer like this. Say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life today. I believe you died on that cross for me, and I invite you to be my Lord and Savior. I recognize that you are holy. I recognize that I'm sinful and that I need a Savior, and I believe Jesus is the one and only Savior. So I make him Lord of my life today. For all believers, I, I just maybe just kind of in your own heart, maybe just thank God for what he did, that sacrifice, and allowing you full access to him. God, thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.